I'm so thankful for her giving me that that sense of being able to choose joy no matter what. Welcome to Super Thank, a podcast focused on gratitude. Sometimes it seems like moms have supernatural powers. They give birth, they shape us as individuals as we grow, and these attributes are so great that there's even a verb for them, to mother. Today's episode of Super Thank is all about moms. Superthank is an organization working to encourage a billion acts of community gratitude. We do that in part by hosting live storytelling events in Portland, Oregon, allowing people to share their stories of appreciation and encouraging more of these gratitude-worthy acts. The following stories were told before a live audience at one of our regular events. The theme of the night was the mother of all thanks. Our first story is from Corey Huff, whose mother did a lot for him over the years including protecting him after an unfortunate incident when he was 11 years old and he was learning to operate a backhoe in their backyard. My mother grew up in an alcoholic family. As a teenager, she was given up and placed into foster care, and she got pregnant with me shortly before her 18th birthday. Now, I wasn't there the day that I was born, but my mother tells me this story all the time. She says that the day I was born, she was watching The Exorcist on the couch late at night, and she was eating a jar of sweet pickles. And in that scene where the woman, the, the little girl is in the bed and her head spins all the way around that really creepy scene, a bolt of lightning struck outside. My mom freaked out, hid under the couch, puked up the sweet pickles, and went into labor. When I was born and they placed me in my mother's arms, my mother says that she had a moment of spiritual insight and that she promised herself that I would have a better life than the one that she had. Fast forward to to when I was about seven years old, my mother and I were living in a double-wide trailer in Payson, Utah. My mother was working at a dynamite factory to make ends meet. One morning, I woke up and walked out of of my bedroom in our double-wide, and I looked down down the hall to my mom's room, and I see a naked man lying in my mother's bed. And I think, who's this guy? That's Bob, the carnival worker. And he was going, destined to become my mother's husband in a not very short, not very long amount of time. At that time, I was going through the D.A.R.E. program. You guys remember D.A.R.E., to keep kids off drugs? Right. I really thought that it was a really good idea to keep kids off drugs, and Bob smelled like pot. So I told my mom, Bob smells like pot. His breath smells like pot. And my mother must have told him what I said, because one day I came home from school, and he walked over to me, and he picked me up by the front of my shirt, and he breathed in my face. (sighs) And he said, does your breath smell like, does my breath smell like pot now? And they threw me on the floor. And I looked up at my mom, and my mom looked at me so shocked, not quite knowing what to do. So neither of us did anything. And I remember after that, as the years went by, listening to my mom and Bob fight. They fought a lot because Bob, in addition to smelling like pot, he was an alcoholic. And he couldn't hold down a job. And my mom, only having a, barely having a high school education, had a hard time finding a good job. So we bounced around a lot from place to place, job to job, wherever the wind sort of took us. And when I was about 11 years old, we were living in South Carolina, and things were as bad as they'd ever been. And I would lay awake at night listening to my mom and Bob argue about money and about his drinking, and things would sort of escalate and get louder and louder, and somebody would say something mean and personal, and the other person would scream back, and it would get louder and louder until finally I would hear this sound. And I would lay there in bed, terrified, wondering what I was going to do. 
couple days later, Bob came home from the bar, very drunk. He walked in the door and he said, Corey, do you want to learn how to drive the backhoe? Now, for those of you who don't know what a backhoe is, let me explain. A backhoe is one of those giant uh, Tonka trucks with a big arm on it that you use to dig stuff out. We were living on this plot of land near, near the edge of the woods in a camping trailer, and the deal was we could live there for free as long as Bob used the backhoe to clear the land so that this developer could build houses there. So we had a backhoe in our backyard. I'm 11 years old. I am thrilled with the idea of learning how to drive a backhoe. So I run out in the backyard with my stepdad, and we climb up in there, and he sets me on his lap, and I'm pushing buttons and pulling levers and kicking things, not paying any attention to what I'm actually doing with the backhoe. And all of a sudden, I hear this, and I look up, and I see the arm of the backhoe slammed into the side of our camping trailer, ripping all of the siding and the insulation off of the place where we live. And I look inside the hole, and I see my mom sitting on the couch going, and I think to myself, I'm dead. I'm dead. Bob's going to kill me. He's so, he's so scary and terrifying. What am I going to do? And my mom springs into action. I've never, I'd never seen this before. My mom springs into action and runs outside and says, Corey, get in the house and go to your room. And I'm like, huh? And she says, get in the house right now. And I, and I run because I'm terrified of Bob and terrified of this new side of my mother. And nothing happens to me. I don't know what she said to him. I don't know what transpired out there on the backhoe. But that is the first time that I remember my mother really sticking up for me and protecting me from the things that could have happened to me. And looking back on my life, I'm, I'm not quite sure how my mother managed to protect me from so many different things that were going on in my life, all of the drugs and the negative consequences of moving around so much. There were little things. My mother really only had two rules for me growing up. I was, I, she had to know where I was at all times, and I was not allowed to get anybody pregnant. She was very serious about those rules. She had a list of names with phone numbers, all my friends and their parents and their phone numbers on the wall next to the phone. And if I was ever late getting home from work or late getting home from school, my mother would start calling down the list looking for me. Is Corey there? Is Corey there? But there were big things too. And one of the biggest ones I didn't find out about until my early 20s. Shortly after the backhoe incident, my mother insisted that we move back to Utah to be close to family and to be where there were good schools for me. So we took a Greyhound bus from South Carolina to Pleasant Grove, Utah, for me to stay with my aunt and uncle for the rest of the summer. And my mother went back to South Carolina, ostensibly to pick up all of our stuff and drive it across the country. And what I later found out was it wasn't that just that my mom wanted to move back to Utah to be close to family. We had actually lost, again, our place to live. And when we had been kicked out, all of our stuff had been locked up in the house. The landlord had changed the locks, and we couldn't get any of our, our stuff. So my mom and Bob spent the rest of the summer doing migrant work, picking fruit and whatever other odd jobs they could pick up in order to make enough money to pay off that back rent and get our stuff and drive it back out to Utah. And my mother had brought me to Utah so that I could be safe with my aunt and uncle so that I wouldn't have to live out of the car for the summer. A couple of weeks ago... I had an opportunity to spend an, a Friday evening with three of my cousins who we all sort of grew up in, in the same area in Utah. And my cousins are all under the age of 28. I'm the oldest. And the three of them are all single parents, all dealing with drugs and alcohol problems. And I'm, I'm not saying this to judge them, just to say that sitting with them, I saw how difficult and, and hard and challenging their lives were. 
And I look back, and my mom was not educated. She didn't go to college. She barely graduated high school. She didn't read any of the parenting books. But she had rules for me. She cared about me enough to put structure in my life. And even though the circumstances that we were in were difficult, I was able to flourish. I went to college. I was the first person in my extended family to go to college. I got a good job. I have a functional life, and I'm really happy, and I have an amazing wife. And I credit all of that to that structure that my, that my mother put around me and the way that she protected me. So thanks, Mom, wherever you are. Did you know that expressing gratitude can ultimately make you five times happier than winning the lottery? Our mission at SuperThank is to promote a billion acts of radical community gratitude, thanking not only people, but also organizations in our communities that make them the kinds of places we want to live. We work to achieve this in part by hosting live storytelling events, where people can share their stories of gratitude. Coming up is a story from a mom about a mom. It's also about a time that many of us have likely forgotten, but really wasn't so long ago. A time when young, unwed mothers were often pressured to surrender their children, often through closed adoptions. Krista Van Veen, one of those children, now a mother herself, told us about her experience in May 2015 at Eastburn, a bar and restaurant in Portland. She dedicated her story to her sons, David and Devin. Someone gave some advice tonight just to feel the emotion, so it's going to come out. Um, so I've, I have a story to share, like all of us here tonight. And I've shared it with a few people, and I don't think I've ever shared it with my kids. So David and his brother Devin, this is for you. I can't even read. (laughs) So I was adopted, and growing up, that was something that I would talk to my classmates about. And they were like, wow, they'd ask me all kinds of cool questions, because... There was nobody else that I knew that was adopted, except for my sister, and uh, it set me apart. But it also uh, was something that set me apart, and as a kid, you really don't want that. And I felt really out of place. And I felt out of place with my friends, but mostly I felt out of place with my family. I felt alone. I didn't have a history that angered me. I didn't have that continuity that people have when they've got a grandparent and then a parent and then themselves. Most of all, I just felt really alone. I never thought I'd meet my birth mother. She made a decision a long time ago, and I respected it. And it was a sacrifice, and I meant to honor that for her. Mine was a closed adoption. I only knew a few things about her. I knew that she was 21. I knew that she was a nursing student and that I was born in San Francisco. So one day when I'm in my mid-30s, I'm reading a true crime novel. Right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, this is a true crime novel. And there's a trial. 
in San Francisco. And the person who's testifying is a nurse who would have been about the age my mother would have been at that time. And I was like, holy shit, this is my mom. And everything changed for me. So remember, this is about, for me, this is about 15 years ago, back when uh, there were AOL chat rooms. So after posting a few details about my birth mother, San Francisco, and when it happened, someone incredibly found my birth certificate and they found the contact information for my birth mother and they sent it to me. She lived in Eugene, two hours away. So growing up, there were two things that I desperately wanted. The first was to say thank you. Thank you to her. I forgot to say her name was Beverly. <laughs> I wanted to thank Beverly. But most of all, I wanted to look like someone and to know that I wasn't alone. So I'm 35 and I meet her for the first time. And it's incredible, it's traumatic, it's fabulous, and we look alike. We laugh alike, we fucking dress alike. <laughs> I had to get one in. So I was born in San Francisco and was flown to Portland when I was three days old and adopted at a month. So there's pictures, I don't know if you could see it, this is my adoptive mom holding me when I'm a month old. She and my father, my adoptive father, that's day one. And for me, that was the picture that was always the start of me. That was the day I was born. But that one special day, when I was 35 and I met Beverly for the first time, she told me a story my story, but her story. So this was 1964, and y'all can do the math, you know how old I am. And back then, unwed mothers, young, it was tough. Unwed mothers giving their babies for adoption were not allowed to see the babies when they were born. They were taken away. But remember, my mom was a nursing student. And so she'd made friends with the nurses in the hospital where I was, when I was born. And there, the nurses let her take me into a supply closet. And she held me in her arms. And she put a little ribbon around my neck with a medallion, a little St. Christopher's medal. And there, with the medical charts and the linens in the supply closet at the hospital. She baptized me, Kimberly Ann. So, I'm 35, and Beverly tells me this story. She shows me the picture. She'd kept this 
all this time. She kept the medallion. She hadn't forgotten me. So, on this Mother's Day, for myself and for my children, David and Evan, I have this message for you. You're not alone. You are loved, and you have been loved since the day you were born. That was Krista Van Veen speaking about how the birth of her sons provided her with the gift of love and healing. We actually know Krista thanks to one of her sons, David, who's also told stories through Superthink, including one about Portland's renowned naked bike ride. Suddenly, I'm surrounded by people that are not wearing any clothing. Our final story in this episode covers everything from a toddler having an accident in a wealthy couple's car to the power of community. Full disclosure, Tim Marcroft is one of the founders of Superthink. In the next few minutes, we'll hear how his mother may have had a hand in that. I want you to picture sort of a barren stretch of road in middle America. Uh, There's a young couple on there. Man has a Jufro. A woman has a papoose on her back. And uh, they're hitchhiking. They're trying to get from place to place. This couple is used to hitchhiking. They've got dusty shoes, dusty hair, suntan skin. They've been to a few rainbow gatherings in their day, even after it was fashionable. Car pulls up. It's blasting European dance music. And, well, they get in the car with these friendly people. The interior is incredible this car, by the way. It's like suede, multicolored, there's lights. It's amazing. This is a party car before it was fashionable. And so they, they share a great time. They share wonderful conversation with these European voyagers that are traveling across the country from show to show. They share a wonderful moment of journey together. And they share food and drink and who knows what else. And then On the way out, um, the woman realizes, to her horror, that uh, the child has left a present. Uh, More like a a large puddle of um, viscous liquid on the suede interior. And though it breaks both of their hearts, they simply have no choice but to thank the couple profusely for all their help and step out of the car and wave them goodbye and hope that everything turns out well for everybody in the end. We didn't have any money when I was growing up, and I mean like zero. Um, Stability wasn't really a a watchword in my life when I was growing up. It was pretty normal for us to not know where we would be living next month or where we would be sleeping next week. Um, But it was never really a problem for me. And that sounds strange. We've heard some stories tonight of people who have undergone some pretty some pretty harsh poverty in their lives. And from a dollar value in the bank stance, I've put myself in that category. But what we had was something that you couldn't put in a bank account. And 
I think it's best explained by these walks that we used to take on the Oregon coast. You ever been out to the Oregon coast, Hasita Head Lighthouse? The there's Devil's Elbow. There's this rock out in the middle of the out in the middle of the ocean, and there's a river that feeds in. Beautiful bridge. It's lovely any time of year. It'll always be 55 degrees and foggy. It's wonderful. So we walk around on the beach as we like to do a lot as a family, and my mother would have me pick up pieces of driftwood and pieces of shells and pieces of glass. The, we love to collect these little, these little ineffable objects, mementos from our travels. And this she would take home and she would paint on them. She would paint people, uh, little darling figures of men and women, sometimes with animal faces, and she would give them to me. And um, I would put them around my room, and I would forget about them, and I would lose them, and I would not understand their value. And it wasn't until really the, um, the Occupy movement rose up around the country, uh, wealth inequality, income inequality, unequal station. Uh, it wasn't until that movement rose up and my mother became centrally involved in Occupy Eugene in organizing around the Opportunity Village so that people could sleep in safety without being arrested and having their things taken from them so that they could be together in dignity despite not having anything. It wasn't until that moment when my mother and father were going through this painful separation leading to divorce that I started to look at my mother, really look at her and see what was there. She's a community leader. She is a powerful voice in advocacy, and she is an incredible individual personal helper to dozens of people in the Eugene community. What I learned from her little stick people and her shell people and from the fact that I would look around me and see all these people in desperate poverty and I would reflect on my own experience and say this is I'm doing okay is that I always had thanks to my mother I always had a community of people around me who cared I always had a knack and an inkling to build and preserve these long-lasting relationships that while weren't going to be worth any money anytime soon, um, we could find a place to sleep when we really needed it. We could get somebody to watch the kids when we had to, when my father had to go out of town for work. We could find a place to live in the basement of some college students as we were getting our start in Eugene. We could find a community that was far more valuable for my life, for my growth, for my mother than anything that we could have bought. And so when I go back to her now in Eugene and I, I see her there uh, with her uh, was fiance, now husband, Reagan, um, wonderful guy, activist, badass all around. Love it. Congratulations. Her phone doesn't stop buzzing. I can't hold her attention down for more than 20 or 30 minutes at a time. And, uh, and I recognize that that's because 
people don't in the Eugene Occupy homeless community, they don't call the police. That's dangerous. They call my mother. My mother will know who to call. My mother will know how to find your dog that you haven't seen since last week. My mother will know where your friend is who you just found out was missing from the camp. My mother will know who to put you in touch with. And that is the meaning that I take from the stick and shell people. That is the meaning that I take from the fact that my life was good and rich, even when we didn't have the money to apologize to the Europeans for me pooping all over their car. <laughs> so when this guy Lenny D called me up in the summer of, oh, I guess it was 2012, um, 2013? I don't remember. Anyway, he called me up and he said, hey, we're trying to build this thing about community gratitude for change makers, people that that do real good in their communities so that we can make people experience that gratitude and maybe grow those change makers' ability to do that. I understood immediately. It's a, it's a thing we've had trouble explaining to people, but I got it instantaneously because I had a perfect example of exactly what that was. And so in some way, uh, in a large way maybe, the fact that I was able to understand it and get involved, help organize these things, means that my mother is responsible for this and the last nine events and all the other stuff we've been able to do. So these little stick and shell people that you look around and you see, thank you, Sabra. Thank you. That was Tim Marcroft, a gamer, cheesemonger, and development director for X-Ray FM. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Another round of applause for our storytellers. Who's proud to come from a long line of radicals and vagabonds. Thanks, Tim's mom. At the end of Tim's story, you heard him talk about creating something to show gratitude for the changemakers in our communities. Guess what? That thing is super thank. If you'd like to get involved, whether it's through telling a story or helping with the organization, make sure to visit us at superthank.org. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Kara Hansen for hosting this episode of Superthink. My name is Eric Klein. I want to say a special thanks to Pottykin Bear for the music that you heard, and of course, to all the storytellers. Thanks for sharing. <laughs>